0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School.
1: This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
2: Welcome. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. We do this every week. We've been doing it every week for more than seven years now. We've been doing it virtually for more than a year now. Virtual via the magic of Zoom. The whole crew is here. One of the benefits of Zoom is that no matter where people go, we're able to loop them in. So we have Eric Bradlow here. We have Audie Weiner here. We have Shane Jensen here. And this is Cade Massey. We are going to go for two hours, as we usually do. We have interviewed delightfully with Ron Bloomberg, Yankee. Yankee batsman, an original designated hitter in the Major League Baseball. And second time on the show. Fun conversation with him at the end of this show. In the first half hour, as we typically do since pandemic time hit, we talk about COVID-19, what has caught our eye in the world of COVID-19. Sometimes we're lucky enough to bring on true experts, people who know things more than we do and follow things more closely than we do. And today is one of those days. We are delighted to welcome onto the show, and for the first time, Maggie Kurth. Maggie is science writer for Five Thirty Eight an organization you guys know well if you've been listening to us very long. She was previously a science editor at Boing Boing and a monthly columnist for the New York Times Magazine. She has a book out, 2012 book called Before the Lights Go Out, Conquering the Energy Crisis Before It Conquers Us. Maggie, welcome to Wharton Moneyball.
1: Hi, thanks for having me on.
2: We are delighted to have you on. We're delighted to have really anybody from 538, but also we want to branch out a little bit. That Neil Payne stuff, you know, Neil... How many times can we really talk to Neil? I Think 74 is enough
1: guys. I Think 74 is enough. Let's <laughs> branch out.
2: We can go to a hundred. <laughs>
1: as much Neil time as possible. That's
2: right. We're pretty pro Neil Payne. Have to be honest with you about that. Maggie, what's it like to be science writer over there? You know, Nate starts out as a baseball guy. He becomes famous as a polit- political guy. Five thirty-eight is, you know, it feels like it's mostly sports. Maybe I'm biased here, but no, I mean, think- it's,
1: it's mostly sports and politics for sure. Um, I'm kind of a weird little niche off to the side. Um, I do a lot of writing around um, like the way that politics and science interact. Um, Mm -hmm. So like how we make evidence-based decisions and those things turn into policy and Mm -hmm. where, where evidence gets ignored, where it gets paid attention to and why um, and I also end up doing a lot of stuff around like uh, the social science of, um, of politics itself which has been really interesting and like not something that I really wrote about much before I ended up at 538 but what, has... what do you mean
2: by, what do you mean by social science of politics itself
1: um, so we've done we've done some stuff on um, voting rights I did a paper that was a uh, paper. <laughs> I wrote about some papers. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, I did a story a couple years ago about um, some of the specific claims that President Trump then had been making about voter fraud and efforts to sort of study what what we could actually find out about voter fraud from sociological research. And particularly this one study that was claiming to find lots of it but then had all of these methodological flaws that turned out to, to basically undermine the entire premise. But what was really interesting about that is that it had been written by a, the daughter of immigrants who was working on her bachelor's degree at, uh, I think, George Washington. And she was writing this thing, just sort of trying to understand voting in America, because that was something that was really important to her dad, who had immigrated from mm-hmm. Pakistan. Mm -hmm. And so they Mm -hmm. had this really interesting narrative story behind it and had this science around, you know, how methodology works in research and how that ends up affecting what we think we know about the world. And that is the kind of stuff that I absolutely love.
2: Well, you, you, you know, and as you develop some expertise on that, here comes the pandemic, which is going to give us plenty to talk about because there's so much at the intersection that you're talking about before you go there Just selfishly, I'm curious. We've been we added COVID nineteen to our coverage um, in the last year, and as as we as we begin to emerge out of it, we we are wondering how we continue that or how we diversify away from that. What 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 do you find traffic's well at 538? You guys have the benefit of putting stuff on the web and seeing clicks. Serious XM won't even tell us how many listeners we have. What do you find in your experience? What have you learned over your time there? Um, on what kind of science and evidence and social science and policy? These are like nerdy stuff that we love. What have yeah. you? Yeah. Traffic swell on five thirty eight, which is fundamentally a sports site.
1: Well, what I think is really interesting about this question is that I consider myself to be very spoiled as a journalist, as particularly a journalist who works online. In that I am not expected to know what my traffic is on any given story. And I don't. Um, we have generally chosen the topics that we cover based on what is interesting to us and what, what feels important to the national conversation. Okay. Um, and I, <laughs> like, the only way I know if something is doing really well is that it tends to, like, I can see it blow up on Twitter. Yeah, and right. um, if something is doing really well, I will end up with a ton of emails from people like wanting to talk to me about it or tell me right. how right. awful I am. Um, <laughs> so like, <laughs> that's about the only way that I know. Um, what I have found with COVID is that is kind of one of the things that we have found Often, with a lot of different topics, is that when we have something, when there is a story in the news, and we are able to bring a a perspective to it, you know, either because we're looking at data that other people have not been looking at, or because we are asking questions and taking kind of angles on that story that other people aren't taking, that those are the things that tend to just really explode. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we did a, one of the things that I think probably did best for us during the, during COVID was early on in the pandemic. We had, I still can't believe this did as well as it did, but we had like a 2,000 word story on um, how, how people build COVID models. And yes, like, yes,
2: please. Yeah. Why like, only 2,000? Give us more. I,
1: I mean, like it, I, it could have gone bigger. Um, but the fact that like, 2000 words on like the nuance of uncertainty in modeling is just amazing <laughs> to me like how much that exploded we okay. actually ended up having a collaboration with the comic saturday morning breakfast cereal oh, really?
3: and Understood.
1: uh we we did a comic version of the same story so like i'm i'm a saturday morning breakfast cereal comic Character now, and that is one that of the best nasty. things for me to come out of the pandemic is that I have this as my, <laughs> as my icon on like every social media now.
2: Well, Maddie, we're going to have to find that, and track it down, and, and re re repimp it out there on the Twitter in the Twitterverse, um, and we need to see the Saturday morning um, breakfast version of Maggie Kirk. Maggie, this this is um, the intersection you're talking about between policy, evidence, social psychology, um, is one that's th- that the mask. The mask policies and debates around mask has kind of swirled around, and yep. here we here we go again with more debates around masks. CDC has new guidance, should seem pretty straightforward. That Turns into a, a brouhaha again, and we have we have our neighbors over in New Jersey saying, "You know, I, I don't care what they say." I'm in New masks. Jersey,
0: by the way, people. So, so you get out. your
2: mask on, buddy. Better get mm-hmm. your mask on. So, Maggie, what's your <laughs> take on how the CDC has seemingly fumbled this so badly in the beginning? In the middle, and now oh here my gosh!
1: This, so this is actually a story that I'm working on right now. Um, talking to a bunch of experts, you know, people who know epidemiology, people who know medicine and policy, and kind of trying to get a sense from them about like how has your view on the CDC changed over the last year? Because we know that like the public, the public perception of the CDC has changed. There's um, There was a, let me see if I can find my numbers on this, but they're, they've been doing polling at morning consult over the last year. Um, You know, which of the, which leadership organizations and people do you have the most trust in? And the CDC is still consistently the highest one. You know, like it is, people trust the CDC still more than they trust Congress or any of like. It's not a high bar. It's not, it is not a high bar. (laughs) This is, um, you know, this is where where the CDC is benefiting from, but their net approval over the course of this has fallen from like 76% in April of 2020 to like 35%.
2: Oh, really?
1: Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just plummeted and they're still They again. They're still the most trusted because Congress is at like a net approval rating of 3%, but that is says more about Congress than it does about people trusting the CDC. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, so what I'm trying to get into right now is interviewing you know, people who are not lay people, but who are experts about like, how are you feeling about the CDC? How are you seeing your trust changing? How, what questions mm-hmm. do you have about this? What are you learning about? What are you learning about this agency that you didn't know before? And mm-hmm. how is this like matched up with what you expected or deviated from what you expected? And Can, can you yeah. give us any
2: early, early bits, any early insights or hypotheses? Um, you,
1: you know, I, there was a expert that I talked to today who like one of, the things, uh, one of the things that he was telling me was that, you know, there's a lot of these questions we're never gonna know the answers to um, because nobody ever sat down and really did good research on them. And that's particularly true around things like non-pharmaceutical interventions, like masks you know, we, there's a lot of advocacy of like, oh, masks are bad and they never work. And a lot of advocacy of like masks are perfect and you must wear them all the time. And the reality is probably something else, but we don't know what that something else is because no one ever did that research. And like, we didn't even really do very good research on what drugs work for COVID. Like most of what we know from that comes from the UK and some programs that they did there that were really well done.
4: Mm -hmm. So, Maggie, based on your interviews, what do you think was the most misunderstood thing from a statistical or analytics perspective? that happened during COVID. Like I always say to me, I can give you mine, people said, oh, the Pfizer Moderna drug's 95% effective, so I have a 5% chance of getting COVID. No, that's <laughs> not what that says. And so what, of all the things, whether it's about, as you said, the effectiveness of mass or the effectiveness of the vaccine or the likelihood of getting it or how it varies by age, of all the things you've seen, what do you think is most oh. misunderstood? And, and, and if you were going to write an article to say, I want to educate you, what would it be on?
1: God,
0: <laughs> <laughs> you can go around the room and ask answer that are each of us because I have yeah, I, I, have, I would I love have. to
1: hear what your guys' answers on that are because like I like all of them <laughs> I, I feel like we've spent so much of this year talking about uh, talking about like what what this stuff means because it's not clear and it's not communicated very well to the public. And there's often a lot of nuance that gets left out because it's not it, because people think it makes it harder to understand. But then you get into this space where I think like a huge chunk of the problem with the CDC right now is that they've spent this year trying to simplify things for yes. people, but simplified it in ways that actually yeah. made it look like they're, they don't know what the hell they're doing. Yeah, it's um, because
2: we we, we I mean we need to acknowledge one thing we've really learned about models, for example, is that we have to consider human behavior and they're not perfectly rational. And so we have to get into that. But it seems like the CDC has taken that too far. And multiple times now they've simplified things too far and they've ended up eroding trust as a result. I'm really curious to hear what what I think you're let's broaden Eric's question. What would you guys say? So Shane and Adi, we put Maggie on the spot. Let's put ourselves on the
0: spot. I'm happy to jump in. I can yeah. I can talk about a zillion of them, um, but one of them that's actually quite current is if you follow the CDC line uh, guidelines now, anyone who's vaccinated doesn't wear need to wear a mask. Um, so uh, I had a local face group, group and you know, just a bunch of friends, nothing nothing public, whereby there was a lot of concern about uh, people who aren't vaccinated, and 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 a lot of that that um, that care was focused on children. And my response was. From the very beginning, children, this is 12 and under the ones who can't get vaccinated anymore, right. which is 11 and under. COVID is not an issue. It doesn't have a death rate that's, that's appreciable. 290 kids have died of COVID at this point, Um 500 is the tip is the typical number that die of the flu every year um, complications do occur but no more than in, with other viruses the the other diseases that that that, that have been that have propped up multi-inflammatory um, syndrome and things like that did not turn into an event yet there is an a massive fear among parents with children that they're going to get COVID and this is going to be a, a harmful thing to them this is to me the number one by the way just to be a
4: grammarian Addy, and you know i like being a grammarian to yeah. who's to them Like I'll tell you, You two parents of
0: children. Um, Well, no, no,
4: no. my fear wasn't about that. My children were going to get COVID. That they were going to get COVID and give it to me.
0: Right? Oh, that was legitimate. That wasn't the problem.
4: But now we are all vaccinated. Well, that's the them I'm referring to. So this is is is
1: actually this is actually what like so I have two small children. I have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. And like, this is what what we actually did a story on this aspect of it, because there were all of these articles coming out in like the Times and blah, 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 where people were talking about like, oh, look, you don't need to worry about your kid because your kid, the chances of your kid actually getting sick are very small. So whatever. And nobody was addressing like the role kids play in community spread of the virus when there are still lots of people who aren't actually vaccinated and want to be. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, like you look at, I actually have, I do have numbers on this right here, but like there was a New York Times article that came out recently that was looking at data on people who want to get vaccinated and have not been, and it's like 30 million American adults, and primarily you're talking about people who are in lower socioeconomic groups, under $50,000 in annual incomes, People in um, you know just very vulnerable communities, like Minneapolis, for instance, where I live, seventy-one percent of white people in Minneapolis are vaccinated, and twenty-one percent of Black people are vaccinated. Wow! And like that, just completely bonkers. And I live in a neighborhood that is a historically Black community. It has a you know high concentration of Black people, and I don't want my friend, like my friends to get sick because my kids are spreading things to them. And that's primarily right. where like a lot of my concern about, like to the extent that I am doing anything with my kids on COVID, it is about how that spreads to the community, but we don't look at it that way because that's not, that's not the obvious fear, right? Like the obvious.
2: So, so by the way, what do we know ab- about that particular issue? What do we know about kids who kids as vectors uh, and I mean, what Do we have that pinned down? Do we know for a fact that they are spreading even if they're not getting it or if they're not symptomatic?
0: The data on that is rather weak. We can't do an experiment, right? So everyone knows that this is very difficult to study. We do know that uncontrolled that studies of schools, for example, where there is um, protections put in place, there's minimal to no um, transmission of, of, uh, of the virus among the, among the students to adults, but now a question that they're asking is: Supposing that there is no, um, no, no, no structures in place, just wide open society, how much transfer would there be among the children? And I don't know the answer to that. Um, generally, it was thought, and one of the recent study we talked about last week, that it's surprising amount of transmission happens symptomatically. Um, it's these aren't symptomatically def- versus symptom- very
4: little asymptomatic. You're saying right?
0: So, so in other words, one thing that we talked about last week in the show is that that actually one of the things that really works with kids is symptoms checking. Don't send them to school when they're not feeling well. Yeah. Um, and that actually turns out to be, because, uh, because viral concentration is one thing we know is something that's important. Um, so we have to ask ourselves, when, when, when our kids are, are going to be seeing other people, don't let them see other people when they're not feeling well, which I think by the way, that'll be the new normal. My really question is will it be the new normal for us and our right. students in college. Right. Right. Well, right. I'll right.
4: tell you a suggestion my school is making. Here's the thing, if you're sick, the day you come back, wear a mask for a day. Mm-hmm. and That's actually a very good idea. It's not so much about COVID. Maybe you just don't want kids getting the flu or a cold or a fever. Mm-hmm. I think, okay. Adi, I think that's one positive change of behavior you'll see.
2: Eric, what I love about that is it establishes a policy that normalizes mask wearing outside of pandemic time, because we know there are some benefits from other you know types of colds and flus. And so you're saying, here's a policy. If, after you've been sick, the first day back, you wear a mask, it makes it okay. There's nothing sensitive about it. Shane, what was your answer to Eric's question that got that got popcorned by Maggie about if you were to recommunicate or or double down your efforts to communicate one misunderstanding about the pandemic, what would it be?
5: And I'm well, okay, so my and to the thing that I've kind of been thinking about the most during, I think, COVID that frustrates me, and it's not like I actually do have the right answer here, but I feel like so much of the kind of modeling and policy is based on this co- concept of kind of uniformity across the population in terms of transmission. So basically, that like, you know, so many models are basically based on you know every single person has an equal chance to like you know spread it to everybody else and we kind of have these very kind of simplistic rates when in reality i think you know i think the kind of the rates can of transmission can differ by magnitudes depending on how socially connected various people are so i think the kind of and i and i mean i say that the It's been frustrating. I don't think it's, you know, I mean, I understand just out of simplicity why we have been communicating and analyzing things this way, but I think we've really been missing out a lot on kind of the true kind of transmission here because we haven't been building in kind of the net, like, like acknowledging how much humanity is this non-uniform kind of network of people and people are kind of nodes in it. And we, we, I mean, we do talk about super spreaders as a concept, but I don't think we really model super spreaders as much as we could have, and maybe a lot of that can be kind of done retrospectively. Some of the best studies of this have been done kind of more retrospectively, like that study out of China for, that we talked about months ago, where they kind of went back to kind of try and classify every outbreak that they'd sort of seen and figure out how many people those people actually talked to. Those kind of maybe there's some retrospect, a lot of retrospective stuff that we learned, But uh, you know, on the fly, we haven't been doing a lot of that analysis.
2: Yeah, Shane, I think this is a really interesting one. We talked; it's been months, but we really kind of got into that when we were first wading through all this stuff and wading through studies and people were explaining what was happening and why it was hard to understand one of the chief explanations was this stuff is not spread uniformly and that really changes the nature of it and it is and we don't have good intuitions for it and you're naming it exactly it's that people it flows through networks and we know networks are highly skewed things so one question for you what I know one implication, direct implication. I'm curious about others. One direct implication that we heard was it means the contract tracing really needs to go backwards. It's not so much as, oh gosh, you're positive. Who have you infected? The most informative thing you can do, given that how skewed networks are, is to go back and find out who infected you because they're more likely to have infected other people. So this is one implication. But I'm curious what other implications. Is there any world in which we would have some way of knowing whether we're one of those people who, who are likely to be more super spreaders or we're in, we socialize or we network in a way that makes us a more important member of the network or whether we know other people we're spending time with are such people. Well, because the data exists, right? The
5: data, the data exists for that. It's on our phone. I mean, with the data, the data probably has been collected for that. It just, you know, it's not being kind of analyzed or anything like that. Uh, Mm -hmm. But I think it it still has massive implications going forward, because again, one of the main topics we talk about now at this stage in kind of COVID is herd immunity. And whether, you know, this is this, you know, unachievable thing, whether we can achieve it, you know, can we achieve it nationally? Can we achieve it at least locally? And I think, again, so many of the kind of models and calculations underlying herd immunity seem to be under these models where it's kind of assuming everybody kind of has an equal chance, you know, is kind of being equally transmissible. Yeah. and so uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's it's gonna be equally important. But I feel like the data is out there, but it's like you know because of privacy and because of all kinds of you know kind of the anathema yeah. tracking and stuff like that we have in the U.S. Especially, it's, it's just hard it's, to it's analyze. It's but funny you know, because
2: you're the anti, you're the anti, uh, you're the pro private. I'm just gonna paint you kind of extreme. No, no, no. Yeah, pro I'm not privacy, saying we necessarily anti government intervention. I don't want people to know my data, and yet you're mm-hmm. you're suggesting there's a world out there where we can kind of continuously know where we are as a network and whether we're one of these members who's highly connected or less highly connected. It's a fascinating concept, but yes, it's funny that it comes. No. From- and
5: I mean, it's been, it's been very philosophically challenging to me this whole COVID thing is because I am very anti-government tracking and, and, and privacy, but I, I think COVID is one kind of public health example where it does, it, it would be, you know, it, it, that data would be helpful.
2: So let me, let me just give my answer to this question. And then let's circle back to Maggie because because we kind of took the ball and ran for a little while, but my, my, I've, I've got a really boring answer, and it may be influenced by recent discussions. But this, this, the, this, the, the communication at least, maybe the understanding, but the communication at least about how rarely coronavirus spreads outside is w- really fumbled, I thought, and 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 poorly poorly. Once it was understood, it wasn't communicated properly, and it's led to so much inhibition. Mm-hmm. In settings that didn't need to be inhibited, the last I saw, there, there's like not a single case in the world, despite the millions that have had it, of basically random, uh, random contagion outside, and it's really affected people's lives in a way that was unnecessary. So, mm. Matt, um, let's let's come back to to to, to find out where you yeah. are. Days on on um, on coronavirus. You've talked about you're you're asking these questions about people's trust in the CDC. We've been at this for a while. What do you <laughs> consider to be some of the fresher questions, or what do you consider to be some yeah. of the harder things that you're trying to dig into now?
1: So uh, this is, I mean, honestly, like this is kind of a we're at we're absolutely at a point in the pandemic where I uh, am like, hey. Pandemic is still happening. feels like the continual headline. that like, you' yeah, right. like you're running right. out of ideas. Um, but the, there is important stuff, I think, still out there. And like the CDC is something that I have been looking at. Um, the other thing that, the other thing that we've been looking at actually is around um, lockdowns and quarantines. Because when, I, when the pandemic was first starting back in, gosh, February of 2020, um, I had done a story talking to public health experts who were at the time, and this is early February, telling me that like, you know, what we know from public health research and from looking at history is that quarantines don't actually work very well. They're not very effective. And this is a very specific or very specific definition of quarantine, right? Like, this is talking about um, very strict shutting down of movement among people who are healthy. So we're not talking about, like, isolating the sick. And even, like, the lockdowns that we had in the U.S. are not... they they're so far off from that that like whether this apply this research would apply to that is Are you
0: talking about Chinese style
1: lockdowns? Talking talk about Chinese style lockdowns. Mm-hmm. And I am now going back to talk to those people because I'm I'm in the process of setting some interviews up because I'm really curious like have we learned something different? Like is this is this something where the research has changed or is this something where we have seen what we th- thought we already knew confirmed because like part of why they were saying it wasn't effective a big part of why they're saying it wasn't effective before is that it depends so much on sociology and if you are quarantining people to the degree that you would actually need to to have an effective quarantine are they just going to start bypassing it Mm -hmm. and like that I, I think like that's a really interesting question I think like that's something that we need to talk about because there's also research out there that has been looking at more US and European style lockdowns and seeing that the effectiveness of those changed over time, that they were really effective initially and weren't so effective later on. Mm -hmm. And there's also, there's a paper from Chile that I am just absolutely fascinated by where lockdowns worked for some socioeconomic groups and not for others. That really? like it, yeah, oh yeah, like it was limiting, like it was reducing spread among like upper socioeconomic groups and not doing anything for lower socioeconomic groups. This makes complete sense because who's the, who who are the essential workers, right? They I mean, can't it,
2: they can afford to be locked down. No, but I, you know, I want to yeah. just
0: follow up with that a little bit because one thing I observed is um, I, I went on a trip, not in the middle of the pandemic, but but kind of eh, sort of in the middle, uh, I was in the airport um, and one thing that I, that, that I observed was that I felt like there was far more uh, minority presence in the airport than I used to see mm. um, pr- uh, percentage-wise. And, and I was just speculating, but I had to do, I thought that because if, you're, if your job requires you to be out, right, then it's so much easier to be with your family. And in the, in the upper, in, in my, my circles, our, all three, all of our circles, we, our job didn't require us to be out, and we not only locked out each other, but we locked out our families, uh, our yeah. extended families, for a very long period of time, because it felt easy and natural and, and accepted to do that. But if you're, if you're naturally going to work, you, you're also more naturally to see your family, and that's where most spread really has, it has, it takes right. place. And right. so it was, it's very different, because we don't think about numbers. I mean, I do, and, and you know, our, our group does, but most people do not think of them in, in raw calculation. They really talk, think of things in terms of feeling. Mm-hmm. Is, does it feel safe to mm-hmm. me? And, and I think that's where, where the differential lockdown was probably observed because different communities had different feelings about how, how safe it was um, because
2: that's how you, you feel and get accustomed to mm-hmm. things. Interesting. I, I got a question for you guys before we run out of time uh, about about what we've learned and where this is going. There was a, what I thought was a super interesting article in the New York Times maybe yesterday on what they called the future of virus tracking and it's a story about a, a cooperation between the Broad Institute and a small college in Western Colorado called Colorado Mesa University. And the, the Broad Institute, as some of you know, is a fancy research organization that's a partnership between MIT and Harvard, kind of you know world-leading organization on this stuff. And they partnered with Colorado Mesa on virus tracking, and it was by, by most people's estimation the most sophisticated version, at least in the United States. And they 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 were able to bring students back in the fall and do classes um, despite a, 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 a student population that's very involved in the community. And they were able to make it work because they say, because of the tracking that they had. And it's mm-hmm. a lot of different pieces. And the reason this is interesting because it's not so retrospective. It's about the future. We've talked to folks on the show who tell us, look, there's gonna be more of these. They've been increasingly around. So virus tracking is going to be relevant next time around. And I'm curious because it feels like virus tracking has been kind of this thing that the U.S. was never very good at, didn't really happen. It's kind of this fantasy la-la land that doesn't apply to us. And the question is, have we learned anything? Will we better? Will we be better equipped to do the virus tracking in a way that helps mitigate some of the downside next time around?
1: And I well, want we, to keep it up for Maggie first. We, we certainly haven't built that infrastructure up. I mean, um, this is actually, I think, a really interesting question and something that that I was thinking about when Shane was talking earlier, because I've had numerous experts talk to me over the course of this thing and be like, you know, I wish we had some, I wish we had centralized health records. Like we just, we don't have anything like that. And that makes it really hard to like, understand early on, like which they belonged to. Um, to understand like to not double count things, to not undercount things you know it to know where people have traveled when they have gotten sick. like there's a lot of that stuff that experts really doctors and experts really want access to. and there's also like not dismissible reasons why you might not want a centralized health database that, yeah. You know, like there, there are, there are multiple re- multiple things happening here. Yeah. And it, I think like, I, like one of, one of my, one of my hobby horses right now is yelling at everyone about how, like, oh my God, stop talking about what if there's a vaccine passport? Cause there's not going to be anything resembling a vaccine passport for many, many reasons. But the least of which is that like, we have no there's no such thing as a, any kind of database of who's getting vaccinated for what at any point in time. Anyway, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, Mm -hmm. like like that, that's just not how medical records work in the United States. And there are downsides and there are plus sides to that, but we have not set anything up to like change that Mm -hmm. for the Mm -hmm. future. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. What about micro applications of it or local applications like this Colorado Mesa thing. So maybe we don't have it on the national level. But will we see more local efforts that are actually effective? And again, the objective here is to mitigate the breakouts, but also the objective is to allow more semblance of normal life. So, for example, one of the things that happened at Colorado Mesa is that they they allowed the kids to continue to work in their jobs in the community. And in fact, they ended up bringing the community into some of the testing program. And so it has these multiple benefits. And if we can't, if we don't, if we're not set up in the U.S., for multiple reasons to do that at the national level. Will we see greater traction at the, at the, at the local or the, or the, or even private, some organizations. I'm asking this as an honest question guys, because you'd think after a year, I mean, if we expect this to happen again, we ought to prepare ourselves in some sense. And this is just this is always fantasy for the U S and I mean, does it have to be, is there any way to use this stuff?
1: I mean, like, honestly, this is, this kind of gets back to what I was talking about earlier with Vinay Prasad, the researcher I was talking to about, um, you know, just how we have not done the studies on a lot of the non-pharmaceutical interventions. It, there's just, it's been like, even on a local level, everybody's just been kind of flailing. And the decisions that have been made have not necessarily and not consistently by anybody been made from an evidence basis primarily Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we haven't done it in any way that you can like look back and be like okay like we know we know what worked here and we know what didn't work here i mean like they just came out as there was a study that just came out this week that was looking at the effects of removing lockdowns in texas last summer and one of the really interesting things that was coming up from that was that like you neither like it neither changed anyone's behavior. Like behavior stayed basically the same before and after, nor did it result in a economic boom of any kind. So both the optimistic people and the pessimistic people were wrong about what the result of th- removing those lockdowns would be. And we still don't know. And like, so what do we do next time? <laughs> like no one's no one's really figured that out.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. all right well this is a pretty i think a somber note to end the
1: conversation <laughs> on, but that's, that's where we I'm are fun. that's where we are
2: we went to maggie Kurth, expert to find out where we are and she told us dadgummit um, maggie thanks for making the time for the show thoroughly enjoy visiting with you i hope to talk with you more down the road and we wish you the best with these articles that you're working on
1: thank you so much this has been really really good conversation
2: Thank you, Maggie. Maggie Kurtz, senior science writer for 538. She has a book out from a few years ago called Before the Lights Go Out, Conquering the Energy Crisis Before It Happens. You can find her at 538. You can also find her on Twitter, her handle up there, at kb one at kb one for the latest with Maggie Kurtz. That has been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
1: on Business Radio.
2: Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the second quarter now. Second to four. We do two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM every week. You can follow us. You can jump into the conversation in a way we we wish you would. We love hearing from you. At W Moneyball is our Twitter handle, at W Moneyball. Jump on with questions suggested topics critiques whatever you got we'd love to hear it at wmoneyball you can also send us an email it's our mailbag we dip into it periodically grab questions we love getting email from you our email address is moneyball at Wharton.upen.edu. moneyball at Wharton.upen.edu. we've got an open mic session for this quarter and next any sport on your mind we're just out of a pandemic conversation with maggie kurth from 538 curious gentlemen around we've got oddy here we've got eric here i think we're gonna lose odd here in a second so why don't we take up the topic of baseball what's going on in major league baseball right now guys
0: well we're, go ahead I, Adi. I, I i'm just i'm just uh uh things are chunking along i really feel More of the same. There's uh, the Yankees and the Dodgers. I think I've been playing badly, but they're still in the hunt. Everybody seems to be compressed. Nobody seems to be running away with it. Um, The hitting uh, home run strikeout. uh, There was a record last night, which I think is worth remarking on. Um, Garrett Cole, even though he lost the game, um, broke a record, which was just set earlier, which is the most strikeouts before uh, most numbers of strikeouts before a walk. So between walks. So imagine you, you can think of the, the epoch of time or at bats between walks. How, how many strikeouts can a pitcher have? There? Oh,
2: let's talk about this. Let's talk about so, this. Um, this is uh, fun.
0: So uh,
2: Cole. Ha- no, 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 uh, don't, don't,
0: don't, don't, don't say, don't say. Let's
4: talk
2: I
0: know about. the number. So
4: I won't say. I have
2: no idea. And yeah. I mean, it's really curious. Okay. Uh, the, the distribution of number of strikeouts between walks. So I don't know the base rates here. So let me ask you some base rate information. Um, the average pitcher, how many? What? What is? What is? They? We usually do these things per per nine and ninety. Well, strikeout right? to
0: walk ratio you could look yeah, at. That's a standard one.
2: Okay, so strikeout to walk ratio is what?
0: Do we know what the average
4: is? I would guess it's. I'm guessing. I would say in the low twos.
5: Okay. I well, think I this is one where you want to use the median, not the average. But yeah, it's got to be pretty I, skewed, I would right? Say
0: Oh, you mean, among what well, do no, you mean the medium among pitchers of what, the, of what the ratio is? Is that what you're? Yeah. What you're, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's probably going to be
5: a pretty skewed thing.
0: Um, yeah. Well, that's an interesting question. I would guess that the, the mean is around three.
2: And what do you think the top pitchers in a year, what, do, what are their numbers for this statistic?
5: God. Oh, I mean, um, like what, what's, uh, what's his face out right now? Freaking. Well, y'all know some whatever. season
2: numbers. Y'all know some season strikeouts and walks. You have some sense of what the season numbers look like. Right? So what's a good strikeout year for these guys? I mean, people aren't, people aren't well, throwing that many
0: Okay, so anymore. I have I – mean,
2: I, I Didn't think 200 used to be a really big deal good. when guys pitched long games? I
0: think five is considered very good. I mean, if you pitch a nine-inning game and you give up two walks, you did pretty well. So if you have 10 strikeouts, you also did – Well, Adi,
4: good. I have it right here. Just, just so you know, through May twenty fourth, 2019 – the, this So not entirely current, but not bad. The all-time career leaders, there's only three pitchers in the history of baseball with above five, mm-hmm. okay, uh, starters.
2: <laughs> for, for their career? Chris for their Sale,
4: co- Tommy Bond, and Corey Kluber. And Is they're on Cooper? five? Where are they? But uh, Chris Sale, 5.3, Tommy Bond, 5.04, Corey Kluber, 5.
2: Right. Are yeah, those career them. numbers or season numbers?
4: They're saying the
5: career leaders.
2: Wow, okay.
5: That must be there must be a certain length thing. Because if Shane Bieber, I'm just looking up, and his career is 5.58 right now. Okay. Okay, okay so we,
2: we have a sense of we have a sense of what guys do at the at the at the high end for um, careers, but now what do you, how do you think that translates into how long they might go? What's the how can we think about translating that number into a streak, a maximum streak? What's it, do we have any heuristics? Y'all are better at thinking this stuff through than I am, and y'all already know the answer.
5: Right. I'm so just I would say for a good picture. Two competing two competing Poisson processes. Well,
0: here's how I would think about it. Here's oh, great. How, I how great, I have a great intuition for
2: it. that, Shane. Thank you.
0: If you want to think here, let me tell you how a probabilist might approach it. What I would say is, if five, I would I would roughly say five strikeouts before a walk is around 50 Um, it's probably not. It's probably, but because of the because of the distribution, we just call that as a fir- first order approximation for a good good control strikeout pitcher like like Corey Kluber, like Garrett Cole. It's about five strikeouts before per walk that's, that gives you the ratio of five to one and so i'm going to call that 50 50 even though it's not exactly so okay. that's say going five without a walk is about a half i would roughly think them of independent right so yep. doing that 10 times is about 50 and that's about one in a thousand yeah half to the 10th all right so that we know and there aren't that many pictures there aren't that many so i would say getting around 50 has got to be incredibly impressive Um, And I wouldn't expect it to be much more than 50 based on that simple heuristic. One in a thousand is about, that's about what you see when it comes to record breaking activity in in baseball. One in a thousand is up there among the tops.
2: Okay. So I love that. That's great. Okay. So um, my answer is 50.
0: (laughs) And you're not far off.
2: (laughs) (laughs) What's the answer, fellas? What's the, and this record was just topped. What was it?
4: I think it's 63. Yeah, right? it was, it was ah. like 62 or 63, somewhere right in that range. Right, well, right. but
2: that's, that's a significant addition to 50, right? So uh, it's well, interesting that it's a little bit better. I mean,
0: it's 25% more. Once you make it to 50, you have a 25% chance of making it to 60, by my argument. Yeah, but you're getting um, way out there on the tail,
2: I guess. Is and is this, okay.
5: just only, is this only for starters, or is this including relievers as well?
2: Uh,
0: it includes every pitcher, but
2: every only pitch.
5: starters get enough pitches in to really have enough opportunities,
0: right?
2: I mean let's yeah. just stand and marvel at that number. I mean it is yeah. remarkable to think about 63 strikeouts between walks. I mean that well, is Well you might also
4: point. think of it if if you if you think of him as a starter and let's say he averages seven innings a start it means he hasn't walked a batter in nine straight starts. Okay. <laughs> holy cow. So there's another way to norm it. If I told you someone had any game without a walk that I would think be it's, impressive and now it's, and it's nine in-
5: straight. Yeah that's it's inherently amazing. more give, it's inherently more difficult for starters I think to do that just because they do see the same batters multiple times through a through an order wait a minute I'm
0: I'm sorry I'm sorry it's strike it's strikeouts but this guy strikes out so many guys so Cole Hamels is I mean Garrett Cole I should say is striking out 10 to 4 that's a great way
2: that's a great way so
0: it might be
4: it might be five starts for him five five or six but I think the other part that's impressive which I thought you were getting to Cade was that's not the function they're trying to optimize in other words there might be a very good time where you you're kind of you would you're not intentionally walking the guy but you're sort of intentionally walking them. And I, even Garrett Cole, you know, there's a man on second and I don't know, the be- Mike Trout is up. And you're like, well, I'm going to pitch around Mike Trout. There's two outs, man on second, you know. So yeah. there are situations where the optimal thing to do might be to walk the guy. Yeah. And he yeah. still didn't do it.
5: This is making me actually think of some amazing reliever seasons, too. I'm sorry to keep bringing it up, but this, uh, do you guys remember Koji Uhara in 2013? He was the Red Sox closer. Yep. Do you know what his uh, strikeouts per walk ratio was for this, for the entire season? 15.
2: 11.22. Oh my gosh. He was
5: 7.33 in his career.
4: Well, Clayton Kershaw had many, many seasons. That's what Clayton Kershaw was known for, striking out 280, walking 17. I think Clayton Kershaw had some seasons that were between 15 and 20. Okay, no, oh, I can't
0: believe that. No, he did. Uh, well, I guess that'll be settled in a few minutes when, when someone looks it up. But that sure. seems rather incredible. But I have to say, I was, just, I, was at, I was actually at a Yankee game where I felt that situation that you described where you should probably walk something came up. The Yankees had runners at first and third, and Stanton was battering. And it's a walk-off situation, meaning that any run scores, it's the bottom of the ninth, the game is over. So there's one out, right? So why not walk Stanton? Well, the argument, of course, is that if you walk Stanton, then a walk ends the game. That's the big negative. But right. the positive is that you're right. not facing Stanton. He was actually the Yankees' only good, good hitter at the, at the time. And someone might say still, of course, he's out, as, as we almost predicted. Yeah, Kershaw year. had
4: one season where his, his ratio was 15.64. 15.64, but he did his career average, by the way, is 4.35. Yeah.
5: And, and and that was actually, I think, I think at least in recent memory, the one season where he had the lowest number of uh, innings pitched too. That is correct
2: too. So Adi's example yeah. of not walking Stanton, how do we relate that to what I, I don't know who else was referred to this, but I think, I think adv- my advisor Thaler has referred to this as sudden, sudden, sudden death aversion in football, a team, sometimes won't go for it on fourth, say fourth and short they need, they need a touchdown, but they will punt it away because if they didn't get it, the game would be over and they're kind of, they want to extend the possibility, even if they reduce the expected value, they don't want to do something that's going to essentially eliminate their possibility of winning. Is that, is that related to this aversion to walking Stanton in this situation where if you walk him now, anything that happens, anything else that happens is going to end the game. But I, I don't quite understand the psychology of that because generally I think coaches kick things down the kick things down the road. And, and, and kick-
5: baseball, it's a little bit different too because sometimes like having an extra amount of base, it creates this like it could potentially create a force play at at at, at each base, Third, which actually now, makes it yeah. like a little bit easier to like make outs, et cetera. So it's a little bit more complicated. The yeah. football. So well, what I agree half all the time. I mean, you kind of when you were talking about it, kind of remind me of like, you know, the Green Bay Packers in last year's NFC championship game where yeah,
1: they kicked they that field goal, goal at the yeah, end. I mean, exactly. I don't think it was
5: the right move, but if they, you know, they if they'd gone alive. forward and fourth and met law and 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 right. you know been unsuccessful, right. the game would bend over.
2: Yeah. Adi, back to your back to your streak. Um, your your longest number of strikes, strikeouts without a walk streak. What about context there? I, wouldn't you expect that those would be more likely to be set in series of games against weaker teams? To what extent is something like that influenced by the strength of the team? Because they play these three and four game stands, and they might string a couple of those t- together against a weak team. I guess it's different for your starter because you're only playing every four or five games. But what if by chance, as you roll into this one every four or five outing, you catch weak teams? I know you've done some stuff that adjusts pitcher performance for the batters that they faced or batters for the pitcher performance performers they faced. What influence do you think that could have on hitting these streaks?
4: I mean, uh, you're making an assumption, by the way, that, um, you know, uh, it's due to the pitcher or the batter now, but maybe it's due to the pitcher. Like maybe the pitcher just has some randomness that independent of the team. So I think a good question is: Is it more due to the pitcher or the batter? I mean, Adi, what do you think?
0: Well, actually, there's so sort of two things. I think that adjusting for opponent quality in baseball is one of the most underused and important uh, aspect of analytics that is just not ignored on, on data. Because generally, because everybody is sort of, it's, it th- thinks of it as symmetric and everything cycles
5: through, but they don't. And, lo- and long run things tend to equal out. Yes, in That's the long run. Reason, but even yeah. in a
0: season, as we know, you know, uh, often the American League East is stacked and they play each other like crazy. And other divisions don't have that kind of um, uh, uh, power concentration in their, in their divisions. So I would, I would look to that, but I would actually think that the big, the big thing about pitchers in particular is they do have variety. They do perform very well sometimes and much weaker other times. You know, I was watching Montgomery start for the Yankees the other night and he just got shellacked You know, in the first two innings, and I'm saying to myself, after the first two innings, the guy doesn't belong in there anymore. He doesn't have his stuff, yet he comes out in the third inning. Why? Because that's what you do. And, I, and that's something that I'm often quite disappointed in. And with Garrett Cole, similarly, he'll throw like 73 pitches and go through eight innings and nope, they're taking him out because you, you just take them out now. It's, it's becoming very formulaic, which I think is somewhat less interesting than it, than it used to be. But, and I'm not sure that the analytics support that, but people believe that the analytics support that.
5: Well, and I, I mean, I'm always curious with these types of things, well, how much of that decision-making is analytics-based versus just like a conversation, you know, like in a, the Montgomery situation, maybe he actually was arguing, oh, I've, yeah, i have been getting shelled so far, but you know, I really feel like I, you know, I'm settling down, I've got it. And like, it was, yeah. he was believed and he shouldn't have been or something like that. I, I just don't know how much of that is. It, it's, I would, all, I always want to know how much of that is really kind of an analytics decision, versus like, you know, kind of a conversation about like between the pitcher and the manager and a a, a bad decision made as a consequence of it.
2: Well, and it's tough. I mean, it's this question of policies, Adi. You are really asking about policies. Uh The reason for policies is that we can't trust people to adapt optimally to any given situation. We've learned that they don't have the right intuition for these situations. So we give them a rule. The problem with rules is that they're going to be wrong sometimes. By definition, they're going to be wrong sometimes, but there's a trade-off. If you take away the rule, you might be worse off because people just kind of flounder. So the optimal situation is that you have a policy, but you're allowed to deviate from it some, and this is really hard to do. And in some some domains where it gets done, but it would be really interesting to know an example in baseball of policies around pitchers where they have a policy and then they're allowed some deviation and who's good at managing that as opposed to just kind of this road thing.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: What was the, what was the thing that happened in the world series last year? That was the worst example that I've seen.
5: Oh, and Snell got taken yeah. out. Yeah, yeah. that's
2: Might've been a championship yeah. ending event. Speaking of pitchers, what is this with Otani leading the majors with 13 home runs? I mean, is he pitching at all? Or is he just, is he he's, just
4: he's pitching. They pushed his latest start back because he wanted more rest. Um, but he's pitching very effectively. I think his ERA last time I checked was in the low threes somewhere, maybe in the low threes. So Five I think starts he, or
0: six starts maybe?
4: Yep. I think he's pitching well. But what's also interesting about his 13 home runs is that, therefore, he's the only player in the major leagues right now that if he went at this pace, which I don't think he is, that'll get to 50 home runs. So these days of potentially performance-enhancing drugs, 60, 70 home run seasons, we're going to probably have zero players with 50 this year.
2: Eric, how many fewer at-bats is he getting because of his pitching, either because of pitching days or rest when he's not pitching? I mean, if he's leading the majors, isn't he getting less at-bats than other people?
4: He absolutely is. Definitely getting less at-bats, especially on pitching days. But even then, they're resting him then. He's not playing every game like he would normally. I think okay. they're targeting him at about 120 to 130 games.
2: Wonderful. All right. Fun story. Fun. Keep on watching for the rest of the year. That has been Q2, guys. We still have q 3 and 4 ahead of us. Come back and join us.
4: You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
2: on business radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball rolling into the third quarter. Now third of four, we do two hours every week on SiriusXM. We're recording this one Tuesday afternoon, Tuesday evening, Eastern time. This is where our usual slot is lately. Not always, but usually we have three of the four Wharton Moneyballers in here now for this quarter. Eric Bradlow is here, Shane Jensen is here, and Cade Massey hosting. Gentlemen, open mic. Uh, Perhaps one of the ripest topics for us right now is the NBA with the playoffs starting. I think the play-in games are starting tonight. Um, The seeds are set. We've talked a lot about the NBA the last couple weeks. Any insights or observations as we begin the 2021 playoffs?
4: Well let's let's start with the Eastern Conference and the Eastern Conference play-in games. So just to remind everybody, 7 is playing 8. The winner of that game becomes the 7 seed. The loser of that game plays has home court and plays the winner of the 9-10 game. So the loser of the 9-10 game is out. The winner of the 9-10 game plays the loser of the 7-8 game. So in the East, we have the Celtics at home against the Wizards in the 7-8 game. Now, what's remarkable about that is that if the Wizards make the playoffs, they will have the worst record in the history of the NBA at the halfway point of the season and continue to make the playoffs. So the Wizards have had a remarkable second half of the season, mainly by Russell Westbrook, has had an incredible second half of the season. Um, But the Celtics are the 7th seed and the Wizards are the 8th, so the game's in Boston. What I found interesting about that is that the Celtics are only favored by two Which would mean that they're basically neutral on a a home court, on a neutral court, even on a neutral court. But if you look at the expert picks, so the ESPN has a bunch of experts. I understand just people's opinions, but they have it 12 and four in favor of the Wizards. So the betting line has Celtics minus two, but three quarters of the experts have the Wizards as the predicted winner of that game.
2: Or do you think people love your
5: momentum? They love momentum, Eric.
2: Yeah, well, well,
4: it could be momentum or it could be the fact that the Celtics' second-best player in Jalen Brown is out for the season. And why would so, the experts
2: be more on top of that than the line, though? That, I have the same intuition that it's related to that, but I don't know why it would I,
4: I I don't know why either. Maybe it is because the Celtics have played really poorly and the Wizards have actually, you know, no one, not only did the Wizards make the playoffs, but they're not the 10. They're the eight. Right. I mean, they they they're only a game or two out from potentially even getting into one of the six lock positions and the Wizards have been playing a lot better.
2: What do we have on Russell Westbrook? I I have he in my mind as a super casual distant NBA observer, he's kind of slipped into the Allen Iverson model of like a, a stats junkie, but the old school stats not really contributing to team performance necessarily. And what you're the way you're representing what's happened here with the Wizards in the second half of the season is that he stepped up his game in some way. And I'm curious, is he playing differently? Is he just playing better? Allen Iverson at the top of his game, it doesn't matter if it's old school stats, he's going to make a difference. Is it that I mean, or do I have a Or is it
5: like a team construction thing where they've been able to kind of hand him the compliments that kind of enable his style of play to be actually kind of successful in a more team sense.
4: Well, the thing I've noticed, and I, I don't know, maybe Matt, our producer Matt Datz can put it up. I just have this sense the second half of the season, he's shooting less which is good because he's not a good shooter, not from three and not from two. Matter of fact, he's historically one of the bad shooters in the NBA history, I think below 42%. I think last time I checked, 40%, 41 I think he had a season a couple ago where he averaged a triple-double and shot 38 or 39% from the field. And I don't mean yeah. from three. I mean from the field. So yeah. he's not a good shooter. But I get the sense that he's been passing the ball a lot more. His number of assists have been way up. And so I'm guessing that over the last 20 games of the season, he may have averaged 15 assists a game. So maybe he's starting to realize, number one, three is worth 50% more than two. And two, his most valuable way is almost like a Ben Simmons. He's a better shooter than Simmons, but maybe his way is I'll drive to the hoop, get double teamed and then kick it out to a three point shooter. And even if they only shoot 35% from three, 35 times 1.5 is 52.5%. That's better historically by over 10 points than I ever shoot from anywhere on the field. Mm -hmm. So I get the sense he's a pass-first guy now, and when he needs to take over the game, that's when he starts shooting. And actually, I think it underappreciates the way he has shot in the game. So that's my sense. And by the way, I think the Wizards do have a shot tonight against the Celtics, because the two best players, or at least the second and third best players in this game, are on the Wizards. The best is Jason Tatum, in my view. And then the second and third best are Bradley Beal and, uh, and Russell Westbrook. I th- absolutely, they can win this game.
2: And obviously, in a one-game series, almost didn't can happen. Absolutely. And as a matter of fact... Yeah, I was, I was just going to say, if, if
5: we do believe in momentum, presumably a one-game series is, is the most momentum-prone of all of them.
4: Well, it's not even... I agree with them. But it's not just momentum. It goes back to Beal and Westbrook are guards. They will have the ball... In their hands. And so, again, that's the difference. Not that Jason Tatum can't bring the ball up the court, but he's not the point guard of the Boston Celtics. And so now your two best players are the guys that are going to have the ball at the end of the game. So I like that as well.
2: So, Eric, you've been talking to us through the bottom of the bracket in the East. What about the bottom of the bracket in the West? The, the Lakers are in the mix there somewhere, right? What's well, not just
4: somewhere. Back? So, and just to, just to give a little street cred in the last 30 seconds on this, the Pacers and Hornets are the 9-10. So, the winner of that game is plays the 7-8 lo- loser and the other one. I don't think anyone's that excited about Pacers and Hornets, but... Let me just tell you, don't sleep on the Pacers. If you told me that the Pacers beat the Hornets, I wouldn't be surprised. And if you told me the Pacers beat the Celtic Wizard loser, I wouldn't be surprised either. They may end let's, up being the eight seed.
2: And let's just be clear. The chalkiest outcomes are seven and nine advance. The 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 most ups, the biggest upset would well, be no,
4: seven five. and eight advance. I mean, eight should beat nine. In oh, the... Seven and
2: eight, right, right. Eight, seven and eight should, yeah. should be the chalkiest. And then the worst it could be is eight and ten. So it... That not is that correct. Dramatic. Seven or eight has
4: to make it. Right. It can't right. be nine and ten. Yeah. right. Got it. In the okay. West, Good. of course, I, I consider this. I think this is going to be the most watched game in the NBA, not just this season, but maybe over the last five seasons. Mm-hmm. The seven, eight matchup in the West is Lakers-Warriors.
5: I know. <laughs> what, a comp- one, what a compelling one-game series. It's
4: a compelling one-game series. And look, I think we all agree with this. If the Lakers, who are the world champs, are now getting healthy again. If they played the Warriors in seven-game series, I think – The Lakers would be an 85 to 90% favorite to win that series. But in one game with Steph Curry playing, you just never know. He could drop 50 or 60, and all of a sudden, they could win. Now, let me just say, by the way, the Lakers are favored by four and a half in the game. The experts, those same 16 experts, by the way, at ESPN, have the Lakers a 15 to 1 chance of winning that game. Now, I think that's way overestimating the Lakers' chance to win that game.
2: You and, you don't mean fifteen to one odds. You mean fifteen. No, no. to one. 15 I mean yeah, fifteen, 15 in favor
4: the, of the Lakers, one yeah. in favor of the Warriors. And there's game. just a lot of
2: agreement, consensus on how they view there's it. A lot Memphis, of
4: consensus, anyway. but maybe too much. And then the Memphis and the Spurs are the nine ten matchup there, and the Memphis is favored by four, and the and the Memphis is uh thirteen experts, Spurs three experts, and so. again, I wouldn't be surprised if the Spurs, but it's one of those things, you know, they call it a trap game. Like, everyone thinks the Spurs are better than they are because of how great Greg Popovich is as a coach, but by every advanced stat Memphis is the better team this year and Mm -hmm. it would not surprise me if Memphis eliminates the Spurs now what's more, more fascinating to me is what happens if Memphis plays the Warriors that to me is a very interesting it's a matchup of two different styles the Warriors are an offensively laden team the Memphis is a defensively laden team that could be an interesting game and of course trust me Utah and Phoenix are saying well if I'm it depends who I am, but, you know, the one seed does not want to play the Lakers, let me tell really? you. And so <laughs> that's the other thing is that imagine the imagine you're the seven, imagine the Lakers end up the seventh seed and they end up playing the two. That's, I just feel really bad for the two seed there. And the,
2: the Lakers would have to lose two to be knocked out, but of course that would be the preferred Outcome for those at the top of that bracket. Let's talk about the top of the bracket for a second. We talked a little bit last time. Sixers, Sixers have the top spot in the East. Am I right, or did they blow it here? The Sixers
4: the not only got the top spot in the East, but they did uh, get ahead of the Nets by one game. But they, you know, who knows? But the Sixers would have home court in the NBA Finals if they make it um, against everybody but the top two seeds in the West, which are Utah and Phoenix. But if we anybody else, the Clippers, the Lakers maybe who knows Denver, we would have, uh, you know, we'd have home court against any of those teams, just not well, against Utah and Phoenix.
2: Speaking of the Clippers last week, 538 basketball model had yep. the Sixers as the top team in the league and the highest chance of winning the finals, which we were all kind of dumbfounded by. Yep. Remember that the, the 538 model does this interesting thing. They have different models for the team in playoffs than in regular season. They acknowledge and kind of explicitly bake in the fact The playoff NBA is different from regular season basketball, regular season NBA, but they had the Clippers now as the strongest team in the NBA and also with the highest chance of winning the finals at 28, though the Sixers are just behind them, coupled with the Nets just behind the Sixers.
4: Yeah. So, I mean, look, the Clippers are playing the Mavericks in the first round. I don't think the Clippers are overly worried about the Mavericks in the first round. Um, I just think the Clippers are a better team than the Mavericks. And by the way, the point differential would suggest that By the way, just so you know, um, without looking, I know I'm looking at it now. Um, what team in the NBA has the largest point differential by over three points? Do You know, I mean, when they look at their plus minus, I'll tell you that team's plus minus is 9.2. And the second place team in the NBA is the Clippers. It's 6.2. Well, it's the Utah Jazz. Mm-hmm. The Utah Jazz are the quote unquote, highest differential team in the NBA, which is Uh, remark on just to show you something else in the West they're the highest scoring team in the West and the second best defensive team in the West after the Lakers so imagine being the best defensive team I'm sorry offensive team and the second best defensive team Mm. that's Utah so people think oh the Clippers are going to beat the Mavericks in the four or five and then they're going to steamroll Utah they're not steamrolling Utah they're just not
2: right All right. So we got NBA playoffs starting tonight. Good fun. Whole new season. It will go on for some time, but it'll be interesting to follow. We've had the NHL playoffs for a little bit more than a week now, and we're going to dive into them in more detail. But
4: before we leave, since we talked about records on baseball, can we spend one second talking about an NBA record? Yeah. What do you got? Okay. so you guys all agree half the NBA teams make the playoffs, right? That's true. Just a fact. 16 out of 32, right? OK, and you all agree that I understand there's a draft lottery, but worse teams have a better chance of making the uh, getting the top pick than the better teams. Right. Yeah,
2: right. The lottery. OK, yep. sure.
4: Do you know there's currently the longest in NBA history, a given team not making the playoff for a certain number of consecutive seasons?
2: Uh, OK,
4: do you know who it is? And do you know how many seasons it is? Why don't we go to the easier one? How many seasons do you think is the record for the most consecutive seasons not making the playoffs? So it's a runs test. Just like Adi talked about, uh, Cole, uh, Garrett Cole pitching 62, 63 innings, strikeouts without a walk. How many seasons in a row has a team not made the playoffs? And it's a record now.
2: So we, could, we know these things aren't independent, so we can't do some of our usual probability games and say, okay, you're, you're basically a 0.5 of making the playoffs. Yeah, because a
4: half 3.5. to the 15th, just to let you know, would be 1 in 32,000 roughly. Yeah, so yeah. you would think
2: that's exceedingly unlikely, except for the fact that these seasons are highly related. In fact, my intuition is that it should be high teens, maybe low 20s, but that's just, that's just intuition. And yeah, it, I would it, have
5: put it actually around 15 or 6, 50 somewhere between The answer fifteen, 15. myself. 15. The answer is
4: exactly okay. mm. fifteen, and it's the Sacramento Kings. For mm. the fifteenth consecutive season, they have not made the playoffs, mm. and so at some point, obviously, they've had some ownership challenges and ownership issues, et cetera. But I mean, to me, I agree oh, with you, you Pete.
2: They haven't had ownership. They have one owner. It's just a difficult owner, right?
5: Well, I mean, that's true. That's true. <laughs> they've cha- they've they challenging ownership, not ownership. Yeah, in the same in way,
2: action. the Washington. Football team has ownership issues, but your point and is right. The I'm Knicks, saying, I can't. I, I, yeah, that's right. No, I think and this is how, one of those
5: times where. How often um, have the Knicks made it in the last twenty years?
2: Yeah, that would have been one of my guesses. It's, but aren't they? The playing?
4: Knicks made it, I think, for the last time in 2013 was okay. the last time the Knicks made it, and then there were a number of years before that where they made it actually quite often. But yeah, they're an eight-year stretch now. But I think Cade's uh, uh, point's a great one, which is sometimes base rate, which let's call the base rate 50%. Yeah. Base rate just raised to the end sometimes is actually not a great approximation when they're not independent. And what I would have thought of was what's the effective sample size? Like we're really calling it 15 seasons, but the effective sample size might be 7 or 8 seasons worth. Oh,
2: this is what I wanted to do. I was just about to ask you what heuristic could we use for when that independence breaks down, and you're going with effective sample size,
4: I am. So, in other words, I'm. St- I just don't want to raise it. I don't want to treat it like. Just for our listeners out there, what I'm saying is, let's imagine a season and the following season were perfectly correlated. Well, then it's two seasons, but it's really one because whatever happened the first season is going to happen the second one. Perfect. So, I'm thinking of it in terms of an effective sample size, and so Perfect. it's not really 15 seasons worth, and probably it's not. It's not half, like it, but it's Less probably two it's probably worth like 10 10 into 15 correlated seasons might be worth 10 independent seasons
2: i'm gonna go lower than that because i think the correlation's higher and i think correlation kills sample size shockingly quickly these, these, this is my sense. And so a little bit of correlation will reduce your effective sample size pretty dramatically, pretty quickly. Just
4: to be clear, which correlation are you talking about? I, just for our, since we're talking about it, are you talking about correlation in wins or are you talking about correlation as what's the probability you're going to make the playoffs given you made the playoffs last year? Or the probability, you, are you talking about the binary yes-no correlation or are you talking about the wins correlation?
2: Well, I'm, I'm speaking loosely and intuitively, but if I had to be pinned down, I would have said the second, the latter, the conditional on having missed it last time was the chance. I
4: agree be. with that. that I, th- I think that's the actual correlation you should look at or the conditional set of conditional probabilities or for our listeners out there, if you created a two by two matrix of in year T and year T plus one, did you make the playoffs? Yes, no. You look at the diagonal of that, which is one, one. I made it both years. Zero, zero. I didn't, and then the off diagonal. Sometimes it's, it's obviously a two by two matrix, but it's sometimes also called the confusion matrix, which is the more elements that fall on the diagonal, there, the higher the correlation. The more the more that fall on the off diagonal, the lower the correlation. And I agree with you, Kate. I think that is the right one to look at. And maybe you're right. Maybe I'm even being generous, and maybe it's not worth ten seasons. Maybe it's some lower number, seven or eight. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I I I just like your your idea of using sample size or effective sample size, which I think it was a Bayesian term, effective sample size as a heuristic. No one
4: more Bayesian than me and Shane. So, of course, I'm using effective sample size.
2: Well, we'll have to come back to to it because we we don't want to we often just kind of throw up our hands. If it's not independent, then, oh, let's pitch probability out the window. But that's not, a very, that's not a very useful thing to do. Maybe seven years into the program, we can have a way to deal with that problem. All right, let's talk briefly about the NHL playoffs. We'll talk more next week. We have a true hockey expert and analyst from both the academic community and the team community next time. But, Shane, what do you got for us on the beginning of the NHL playoffs? <laughs>
5: Well, I mean, a few different exciting matchups. I mean, I mean again, just to kind of remind our, our, our listeners that, you know, the NHL hockey playoffs are a little bit different this season than usual. Usually it's kind of like the NBA where you've got, you know, you, you've got half the teams making the playoffs and we, it's kind of just seeded one to eight. This year we're in four separate kind of potted up divisions. And those, there's kind of an internal to those division playoff to get down to the final four. So for example, there's an all Canadian division and has been the entire season where they've only played each other and they basically will have their little kind of four team playoff um to get to kind of get their kind of pick to the final four and what that has kind of done you know structurally is create some very interesting matchups that you don't usually see so i mean one of the kind of matchups i think is one of the most compelling going into this is that the toronto maple Leafs are playing the montreal canadians the two yeah. i mean you know in terms of championships and stuff like that probably the two most storied franchises in the nhl are playing themselves yeah. playing in the first round they haven't i mean it's been i think since the 70s that they've met each other even in the playoffs amazing okay. um, so that's already kind of exciting and it's also exciting because because you know, again, the Maple Leafs kind of like the Red Sox of older. This this hockey, you this, know, this very passionate hockey fan base. It's where the Hall of Fame is even located. But they've had, you know, historically not much success in the playoffs, and they haven't won the Stanley Cup since the late '60s.
2: Yeah.
5: What I love about the NHL playoffs, and they have year, a really good shot this year.
2: Well, the you know we're fans of Kyle Dubas, the general manager. We're always kind of talking about his uh, his young rise to that position and watching his moves and kind of pulling for them as a result. So what, what has been the outcome so far with the, with the Leafs and uh, Canadians?
4: They haven't started yet. So the Canadian yeah. one actually, because they got delayed because of COVID oh. um, their division, they're not start. I think their first games on Thursday, Correct. Um, there, the other ones have already started, um, and uh, I think one of the divisions I, – I forget which one – has played at least two games right now. I, I forget if
5: it's the there's – There's a couple – the, the, the uh, Eastern ones have played. So, for example, the Boston Capitals series is already knotted up at 1-1, and the Canadian division has not um, – you know, has not started yet.
4: The part I thought also was interesting was, um, Kate, I, I was thinking about not just the historical matchups, but if you took the, this is intentional because of COVID, if you took the geographic distance between the pairs of teams, I'm sure it's the smallest in NHL history. And what I mean by that is the Pittsburgh Penguins are playing the New York Islanders. They're not that far from each other. The Washington Capitals are playing the Boston Bruins. The Carolina Panthers are playing the Nashville Predators. The Florida Panthers are playing the Tampa Bay Lightning. Toronto's playing Montreal. Edmonton's playing Winnipeg. Colorado's playing St. Louis. And Vegas is playing Minnesota. So in some sense, we're seeing like eight regional matchups. I understand, it. you know, if uh it could have been a few closer ones than that but those are those are pretty close matchups and i actually like the fact that they didn't change things up i mean if the regular season is going to be these teams of eight pods then do the same thing for the playoffs play Mm -hmm. these teams let's see who wins their group of eight it's the only fair way to do it and then let's get the four out of there
5: i think it makes sense that's a good design
2: and we're all i mean i'm over I'm Tom kind of Hunt,
5: fascinated. Right? I'm kind of fascinated by it too, because I mean, there's all, you know, there's so much uncertainty in NHL playoffs anyway. And in our, once we get to the final four, it'll, it's literally going to be matchups against, please, it have, teams that haven't, have never played each other this season.
2: Yeah, it's like the old, it's like and the so old league league baseball where the national, once the national right team there. goes out and plays the American League for the first time all season. You get it's, it. Just makes it more of a novelty. It's good fun.
4: Yeah. Since we're also in this in this uh, show talking about runs a little bit, like I just noticed, I just when I was looking at the results, four out of the seven games have gone to overtime so far. Now I know that's a right. small sample, but my question is, what fraction of playoff hockey games go to to go to overtime and obviously it's not you know if all the games were done for the whole playoffs and over 50 percent went to overtime I think we'd all say wow that's a lot of overtime hockey and that's a lot of games in overtime but that was just one thing that struck my eye
2: yeah yeah it's fun it's I mean also I mean overtime playoff hockey is just more fun than regular season hockey and playoff overtime hockey is just getting pretty ridiculous uh, what's the base rate for overtime and hockey period Shane, how often does a regular season game go into overtime? I
5: would kind of have to, I mean, I would, I would guess like, you know, maybe I would say like, maybe I would guess a quarter to a third of games go to overtime. Yeah, it's, it's not,
2: it's not uncommon Something
5: like that. There's just, you know, the it's scoring, pretty, I think the nature yeah. of it. Um, yeah. Yeah.
2: Okay. So fellas, before we wrap up, we just got a couple minutes here. What else we've, we saw the NFL schedule come out. That's good fun. Our friends over at PFF ran some numbers and said, based on the betting lines, we already have game-by-game betting lines. We already have game-by-game totals out there. They can tell us power rankings for teams across the NFL. It's good fun. The teams that lead are kind of the teams you'd expect. the Kansas City Chiefs, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Buffalo Bills are out there kind of head and shoulders above everybody else. Good drama around this, the calendar. Anything jump out to you, Eric? I know you're always looking, trying to scheme some games. Well, the to-
4: one thing, and, and by the way, thanks to at PFF Bren Brown for doing something interesting around that as well. The thing I would say is um, I'm happy because, according to this, I see the Chiefs. Huh, that's an AFC team. The Bills, they're in the AFC too. The Ravens, <laughs> oh, they're in the AFC too. Oh, yeah. Cleveland, they're in the AFC. Oh, the Colts, they're in the AFC. Tampa Bay sitting by themselves, sitting there in the NFC. And I'm, I, I'm telling you, I, I think it's a weakened NFC. Certainly if the Packers trade Aaron Rodgers or they get rid of Aaron well, Rodgers. That, yeah, I mean, then basically. No the Drew breeds on the Saints. Where yeah. is the, I mean, you could say, okay, uh, Seattle and Russell Wilson. But where is the power? I think the AFC is definitely the strength. There's more strength in the AFC this year than there is at the top of the NFC. And I think the Buccaneers may take advantage
5: of that.
2: Well, you know, there's another suggestion that comes out of that, and that is if you want to drop some money on a futures bet, uh, if you'd like some want to bet some total wins or something like that, you might look at some of those other NFC teams. Because the AFC is so crowded and because the NFC seems weak, it's definitely more open. So if there's some team that was kind of middling last year in the NFC, that might be your best dark horse candidate for one of these future bets simply because Tampa Bay is the only real contender on that side from this, from this distant perspective. All right, fellas, that has been – Three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We do four quarters, of course, so we still got a quarter to go. It's our interview segment. Come back and have it have a listen of our conversation with Ron Bloomberg and baseball and all things New York. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball
1: on Business Radio.
2: Welcome back to
4: Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School. And I'm here with my co-hosts, Audie Weiner, Professor of Statistics, and Shane Jensen, professor of statistics. One of the great things we have here on Wharton Moneyball for the last seven plus years is we get to interview guests who really know the sports and also in many cases the analytics side of things. And today is no exception. Um, I think everyone on our show knows that has listened to us at all that there's no two bigger Yankee fans on this planet than myself and Adi Weiner. There's no bigger Red Sox fan than Shane Jensen, but we'll ignore him for this episode here. But we're absolutely thrilled to have rejoining us here on Morton Moneyball, Ron Bloomberg. For those people that don't know Ron, although you should if you know anything about the history of baseball, Ron is is the first Major League Baseball's designated hitter. He was designated by myself, a Jew growing up in New York, as the great Jewish hope of the Yankees during the 1970s. And I think the way many people view it, um, he's kind of an icon of boyhood dreams achieved. Um, the story of Ron's life has inspired many, many people. And of course, part of the reason we're having Ron back is his new book, which is out, The Captain and Me, On and Off the Field with Thurman Munson. And so, as again, someone that grew up in New York in the early late 60s and early 70s. It's really an honor, Ron, to have you with us back here on Wharton Moneyball.
3: Well, it's it's an honor to be able to talk to you all again. And first thing, you all being too smart for me and uh, almost failed uh, algebra. And that almost uh, uh, put me almost like two years behind in high school. So I don't know if I can outsmart you now, but I'm sure going to try. Believe me, I'm sure going to try. But no, no, it's really, really wonderful to be able to speak to y'all. Thank you for being such big uh, Yankee fans. And unfortunately, we got a Red Sox fan over here and the Red Sox fan, the Yankees, we won when we wanted to, you won when you could. So you remember that now. So you remember that. So, Adi, why? Oh, don't I mean, we, I mean, honestly, we,
5: we need for, for for the yin, there needs to be a yang. So, I'm happy to represent the opposition on this one. So, let,
0: let me jump in. Um, I, I uh, when I saw your book had come out, the first thing I did was run and buy it and read it. And there's two reasons for that. As Eric pointed out, um, you were the sort of the, the great Jewish hope of the Yankees, and as a Jewish kid in New York w- who dreamed of nothing else other than being a professional baseball player. It was it was You were an inspiration to us all. We knew we were super long shots. And I quickly, you know, uh, realized that I had a better chance with my algebra than I did with baseball. But I still love baseball, uh, probably more than algebra, believe it or not. But the other person, your new book is about uh, on and off the field with Thurman Munson. And Thurman Munson was probably my other hero. Um, I remember there are very few people in my life where I remember exactly where I was and what I was doing when I heard of their death. And Thurman yeah. Munson was was one of them. He was the great Yankee captain. He was one of the Troika, the three tremendous ca- uh, catchers who were all playing at the same time. Of course, Johnny Bench, and then I have to mention it under my breath with a curse: Carlton Fisk, and uh, and and Thurman Munson. And your insights into the kind of person that Thurman Munson was was spectacular. And just reading your book was great. But that's a total plug. Um, so, I mean, I I'd, I'd like to get it started and maybe you know talk a little bit about Thurman Munson um, and and his career and, and maybe do you think he should be in the hall of fame or, and, and and how would, you know,
3: this is a very easy conversation to speak about because first thing I, uh, uh, oh, I I say maybe around about three, four years ago, I was thinking about maybe writing a book about Thurman because each and every, each and every year, uh, once Thurman got, uh, uh, eligible to be in the hall of fame, it looks like his, uh, uh, Numbers kept on going down and down and down and down. And I said, how in the world? Because this guy is such a, number one, a great leader, a great ball player. And, you know, and he's being left behind by all of these other people there that are great ball players. But I I would tell you right now, the two other guys that you put in was Johnny Bench and also Fisk. Uh, They're great catchers. But they're not better than Thurman Munson. Thurman Munson was a, uh, he was a different type of guy. Okay. I met, I got drafted by the Yankees in 67. He got drafted number one in 68. And we met in 69 down in spring training. And we really got along extremely well. He's a a Jewish athlete coming down from Atlanta, Georgia. And Atlanta, Georgia was, uh, uh, really wasn't a big baseball town, nor a big Jewish community. Okay, but I was very, very lucky in my life because most Jewish good athletes that lived in Atlanta always became a doctor or a lawyer and went into mom and dad's business. Okay, my parents. I was very, very lucky. They let me do what I wanted to do. So I went up the ladder, uh, got drafted by the Yankees number one. I I signed a basketball scholarship in 1967. Uh, with uh, 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 John Wooten, I signed what they call a blood tent. When you signed a letter of intent at that time, if you wanted to play basketball, you would have to go play basketball. It's not like nowadays, you know, as you see, I like this college, I'm going to commit. Now, then the next week, he'll go to another college, he likes that just as well as the other college, so he commits to that one. So, if I, wanted, if I was going to play basketball in college, I would have to go to UCLA. And also, I uh, signed a letter of to play football for uh, Bear Bryant at University of uh, Alabama in 1967. So, you know, I, uh, had my, uh, uh, I had everything arranged for me. But I was very, very lucky that I knew that if I was going to stay healthy and, you know, my baseball career and my athletic ability was improving each and every year, but I knew that the Yankees were going to draft me uh, number one. Okay, when they drafted me number one, that was a no-brainer. I signed with the Yankees, and, of course, uh, uh, I went through the Mono Leagues. But once I met Thurman in 69, down in spring training, we really hit it all. Uh, so, Ron, true, let me ask you a
4: question. Let yes. me ask you a question related to something you just said about Fisk and Bench, because obviously – You know, when you look at the Hall of Fame and you look at stats, you know, because we're a statistics show, too, you look at stats for catchers. Most people would say, you know, along with Yogi Berra and others, these are the top catchers of all time. Can you as a player, someone who played at the highest level and excellently at the highest level, can you look, tell us our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball. Can you look at a Thurman Munson, a Carlton Fisk and a Johnny Bench and say what you said, which says they were no better than him. What can you see that the average person just through the standard statistics might not be able to see that would kind of say, yeah, Munson was as good as them?
3: Well, I'm not just looking at years because y'all looking at years. If you look at uh, a fist, I think played, what, 20 something years? Yep, 24. And How many did Johnny Bench play?
0: Also nearly 20.
3: He played almost 20 and Thurman. So that, that's 10. the knock
0: on, on Munson. I mean, Munson. Okay, he played 10 years. He played 10
3: years.
5: So, okay. so the, though the rate stats for Munson and, and I mean, Fisk had just as good rate stats as well, just over a much longer career.
3: Yeah. But I'm looking at him as what he did on the field and what he did to make a team better. I'm not looking at somebody's average, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, you get Dave Kingman, here's a prime example with 500 something home runs. But what did he do? Okay. Now, here's another example. You look at Bill Mazeroski, who was a really a great defensive ball player. Now, should he be, be in the Hall of Fame? Here's another. I'm going to bring you up another stat. You look at Nolan Ryan. If you look at Nolan Ryan's stats, he was a 500 pitcher, correct? He Barely 500. above
4: 500. Yep. He was
3: a 500 pitcher. You had Don Sutton, who played for almost like 25 years who uh, barely won, you know, uh, uh, got up to 300 wins. Now you put them in automatically. Why? Because they won X amount of games. Well, Thurman came in when CBS owned the team. Okay. When CBS owned the uh, uh, the Yankees, CBS did not put a lot in their minor league system, nor did they uh, spend a lot of money for trades, or went out. well, we didn't have free agency then. So I can't, I, I can't talk about free agency. But, you know, when George came around, and when George came around in 73, George told us money was not an object. I'm going to bring a winner back to the New York Yankees. I'm going to bring them back to the uh, uh, Yankee fans and bring back to New York. And that's what he did. Now, with the type of trio of players that we actually had on our team, starting from 1972 with the uh, Thurmans and the Roy Whites and the, you know, myself and you got uh, Jerry Kinney's and you got Bobby Mercer and you got those type of people. Okay. So we got characters on the team. Okay. Now Thurman had to come in to, uh, uh, to uh, uh, be a, when Thurman came into the Yankee organization, he had what they call an it factor. An it factor is guy, he was a god ability to become a, 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 a captain. He was a captain without being appointed a captain. Because as soon as he came in, as soon as he came into that team, he took, he took the, uh, 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 the ability to start a team. And
0: that's what he did. Ron, let me, let me uh, I finish your book, and I'm going to remind the, our listeners. The 1970s was a little different time compared to the 2020s, athletically. One of the things that the players did substantially that we don't really hear about the players doing today is they were distracted, whether, whether that was with theater or alcohol or bars or late nights, and you get a strong sense that the leadership uh, that what Thurman Munson provided was making people play up to the, the highest of their abilities. And so I want to ask you a question, Ron, can you reflect on today's baseball player, compare them to the baseball players of, of the seventies and, and why do they seem that there's that today's baseball player comes with a, a, a personal fitness coach and a nutrition coach and their own cook cook. And they like have an entourage that makes sure that they all are constantly working. You didn't have that back then. Is, is there anything lost in that? Or is it all to the better, to negative? What do you think about that?
3: Well, I think it's negative because I, I see more people getting injured. And I, I, I see people getting injured. I never even heard of these injuries before. Oblique. You know, I mean, <laughs> hey, we swung as much as these guys did. These guys. But what they, what? they uh, let me tell you what they – you know, I, I go to Yankee Stadium all the time. I work a lot with the Steinbrenners. I do a lot of meet and greets. For the last 16 months, I have not gone up to the stadium – But, you know, but hopefully this thing will uh, eventually just weed out and we could start our whole lives again. But, you know, if you look at the athletes when we played, number one, we did not have the uh, 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 modern medicine that these guys have. We did not have a scope. Uh, We never had that. When I had my shoulder operation, I had it done with Dr. Job and Dr. Curlin, out in Centrella, who did the uh, Tommy John surgery that uh, cut on my shoulder. And then I had my knee operation, uh, Dr. Nicholas, who did Joe Namath's knee. But they had to cut muscle to muscle. Back, If you're talking about now where they can just put a little, put a pin thing into your shoulder or your knee and and do all these things that they medically, you know, I mean, hey, it's a lot easier process to come back. Okay, now, that's number one. These guys, they are, they, if you, you know, are they in baseball shape back when we played? No, no, because we used to run and run and run and run because we didn't know any different. We didn't have weights. You know, we might pick up a coconut down in Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> we might pick, you know, I mean, we, you know, that's all we did, pick up oranges and bananas and coconuts, But these guys, they work out before they come to the ballpark. I'm sorry. They work out as soon as they get to the ballpark and they work out after the game. You know, if you take these guys shirt off and they look like a Zeus, they look like they should be in the swimsuit. You know, they they, they don't. When we played, we might have 16, 17 percent body fat. These guys got three to four percent body fat. So when David Cohn say, said to me a year ago, he said, you ever seen a fat person pull a muscle? Look, <laughs> think about that. Because a muscle has to be, you know, I mean, you, you got to have cushion. These guys don't have any cushion because it's muscle on muscle. You look at, you know, oblique. These guys, these guys just swing and swing, and then they pull a hamstring. They pull them up. You, I don't know if you go to Yankee Stadium now these guys don't take infield practice. We used to take infield practice. We used to get loose. The pitchers used to run from foul line to foul line. These guys bring out a frisbee and they throw a frisbee about four or five times, and that's all they do. These guys are not uh, uh, non-inning ready uh, to uh, to pitch nine innings. And these guys, every time they run from first to second, you got you, you know you get Sanchez. Or you got Stanton. If he runs from first to third. You know, um, you know he's going to be out for three, four games, or five games, or whatever. You know, I mean, hey, it's it, it is what it is. You know, the game has totally changed. It's it's worse. It's I'm just telling you right now. If you like to see home runs and strikeouts, you'll love it.
4: So we're here talking to Ron Bloomberg. Ron is Major League Baseball's first designated hitter, as known to many of us from New York, the great Jewish hope. Uh, Ron's here also talking about his book, The Captain and Me, On and Off the Field with Thurman Munson. I just wanted to ask you one question from the first couple chapters of your book that I read. Um, when I look at your career stats, do you ever say to yourself, at a 293 lifetime batting average, very productive home run hitter and RBI hitter why the hell did Ralph Halk not play me more? Like if you were, ba- if that was your numbers today, you'd have had 500 and something played appearances a season, not 300. Maybe. Your numbers would have been different. I don't, you wouldn't certainly wouldn't have been out of baseball at age 30. So yeah. how do you view your career and the way you were utilized by the Yankees? Cause advanced analytics probably would have looked very favorably at you today.
3: Well, it would have, but the problem was when I first uh, when I was 19 years old, I played up in Syracuse. Remember, we had one-year contracts. Right. We had one-year contracts. Okay. We had to produce. Uh, the uh, the managers have one-year contracts. They have to produce. So when I was up at uh, Syracuse, they had a, vet- a very big veterans t- a veteran team. And, I mean, I'm the 19-year-old guy. I'm playing with guys who just got sent down to the minor leagues. And Frank Verde, who was the manager, And uh, had to uh, uh, win. And so he platooned me because there was other guys. Then I go up to the big leagues. They platoon me because they really never saw me against left-handed pitchers. If you look at my stats against left-handed pitchers, it wasn't that bad. I had some home runs when they left me in. But understand, we had one year contract. We couldn't say play me or trade me. We couldn't do that. So, I mean, hey, my mouth was shut. I did the best I could uh unfortunately i had a lot of injuries when i played uh but i gave 120 percent and let me tell you something when i got to put on that yankee pinstripes when i got to play in yankee stadium and when i got to play in front of the greatest fans in the world yankee fans i was very very lucky throughout my life shane you
4: wanted to uh, jump in with a question for ron
5: well, I actually kind of want to get, get your gauge on kind of, obviously you followed baseball uh, since then. Are there particular kind of, you know, people, especially designated hitters that have kind of caught your eye uh, that you have kind of stood out that you've really kind of particularly enjoyed watching either because of, you know, the way they, the way they uh, play, uh, the way they hit, or, you know, the, the, I guess the kind of more intangible aspects of things.
3: Well, you know, if you have to look at the DH, because when I, in 73, when I became the first DH, I screwed up the game of baseball. And I never thought the game of base. I, I never thought the DH was going to be in existence. It's 48 years, okay? It's 48 years, and they still cannot universally make the DH in the National League. And then they could put a guy on second base in uh, extra innings and make like it's a, a Sunday uh, 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 Sunday school game. And then they can slide in the second base. And the f- greatest, the greatest beautiful play it's when you slide in the second base break up a double play and watch the shortstop go over you i don't know about you that's a beautiful play okay
4: acrobatic
3: oh when you do that and when you do that you go back to the dugout if you have a nice uh, slide even if you're out they give you a high five the manager comes up then you try to slide in the home you know you know being a catcher is just like playing a first base because you can't get right in the middle if somebody, you know, had the ball and, you know, in the last inning, he has a ball, bam, 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 you can't hit him. If you hit him, you're automatically out. But yeah, it's totally changed the uh, the DH. Edgar Martinez was a wonderful guy to watch the DH, number one. Uh, David Ortez, going eventually, your guy, going mm-hmm. to be a wind up into the DH. And look at it now. Look at the DH now. If It's a change it's, it's changed baseball totally, totally, because once you're in the DL, you could get guys coming back, being a DH, and just like taking batting practice, and they're hitting, and it's part of the game now. It's great for the game of baseball. It's great for the game. So let me
0: ask you a question, Ron. One of the things that is quantifiably different um, from the 1970s is the average uh, velocity of a pitcher has is grow- is grown tremendously. How do you think um, that has changed the game, the fact that the pitchers throw so much harder? Is it tougher to hit a harder-throwing harder, uh, pitcher, or do you think that, that we've lost the art of crafty pitching?
3: Okay, you're totally wrong. How do you know that the uh, pitchers back when we played throw uh, 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 They don't throw as hard. We didn't have a gun. How do, you, how do you know? Let me tell you something. There was no pitcher threw harder than Nolan Ryan.
0: That's true. Okay, that true. that's number
3: one. There was no pitcher on the left hand side threw harder than uh, uh uh you got a Randy Johnson, you got a Steve Carlton, you know you got these guys, you know you might have some guys, but they played five innings. They pitch for five innings. They don't pitch right. the whole game. Right, that right. The so mean
0: is what's different, Ron. What's the, what the typical pitcher throws much harder. The extremes of yesteryear are probably just as strong as they were today. But what you have today is that the average pitcher now, I think the average fastball among a starter is 93, 94 miles an hour. Yeah, if
3: you That's can't, a can't hit a fastball, fastball, you shouldn't be up in the big leagues. You cannot Well, you Ron, did you a notice fastball. a
4: difference? Let's, I'm sure our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball would like to know, how much harder is it to hit a 98-mile-an-hour fastball versus a 92 or 3?
3: Hey, let me tell you something. I'd rather, you know, let me tell you something. The pitchers that threw harder – It was the easiest thing in the whole world to hit. The pitchers that had the great curveballs, like a Bert Blyleven or Andy Messersmith, who was from twelve to six. Those are the guys. Those are the guys that have you know you have a problem with. But you know I I played with guys that threw spitballs, that (laughs) threw uh, they Gaylord Perry. You knew what he's going to throw, and you still couldn't hit it. Nowadays, these guys. Number one. Being a hitter, it's a lot easier to know that if these guys have good control, you know, you're going to face, you know, from uh, neck to chest, they got to throw, hey, you don't have guys that are going to come in on you because they're not going to call that pitch. Umpires are not going to call a pitch on the outside part of the plate. It has to be a perfect pitch for you to hit. If you look at guys, okay, look at Aaron Judge. Let's take an example. He's a really a a nice ball player. He's fun to watch. He's good. He hits the ball 700 feet, and it's great. But if you look at his home runs, he hits home runs on all fastballs. Think about that. Think about that. And, you know, when we played, we had guys like you talk about Tommy Glavin. You're talking about Catfish Hunter. These guys threw in the mid-'90s too, but they didn't have to because they got pitches on the inside and they got pitches on the outside part of the plate. And you have to, you, you have to adjust. You don't have to adjust as much as you know that you are going to see a fastball. Here's a prime example, Gary Sanchez. I'm reading about him. He can't, uh, 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 he can't uh, get up to a fastball. Now he's 28 years old. He's never going to be able to play anymore. If you can't hit a fastball in the big leagues, you shouldn't be even be in the big leagues. I'm telling you right now. So you
0: know, so Ron, let me ask you let me ask you a question we talked <laughs> about. Um, if you could fix one thing, one thing, not ten things, one thing first about baseball and, and we made you the commissioner and you got to implement it. what would it be?
3: Honestly, I throw all the analytics <laughs> away. <I literally laughs> the re- no 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 because you're all analytical y'all. you know I'm telling you honestly we want to know why when, why okay, we want to know you, why okay when you play baseball, And the ball is coming 96 to 100 miles an hour at you. How many times can you think? You have to react. It has to be ability that you got to hit. You got to see the ball. You got to swing. You got to hit it. Nowadays, you got all the computers. People after they hit. I was talking to Nick Swisher, and Nick's a real good friend of mine. Every time he used to go hit, he used to go watch himself down in the clubhouse and how he hit. But a good pitcher is not going to throw you the same pitch every single time. You got to adjust. You know, he's not going to keep on throwing fastballs. He's going to mix them up. So but, you, but, but yeah.
0: Ron, let me, let me stop for a second because that's the analytical thing that we just have very little to do with, we analysts, because that's the kind of the field analytics kind of stuff. Sure. One of the things that I look at the game and you see my entire life, and all the time you were playing, the 70s, 80s, 90s, even aughts, a hard shot up the middle, I didn't have to look. That was a hit. Today, a hard shot up the it's middle. almost it's, never a hit. It's almost never a hit. What the analytics has done is position the fielders almost optimally. Uh, and my question is, do you want to get rid of that? Or do you think the players, the batter should re- should be reacting and recognize that they've got to change? What's the thing that you want, you want to see different?
3: I'd like to see the uh, manager get, get involved more. That's number one. And the catcher behind the plate, usually uh, will move the infielders and the managers uh, uh, on the bench will move the outfielders. And, you know, when you had the uh, uh, Joe Maddens, and I always talk about Joe when he had that shift. and, you know, you put five guys at second base, if you're a left-handed hitter, you know, Hey, if I want to hit 300, I'll bunt down to third base. Even if it's inside, I'll still bunt behind for third base, but they don't look at that anymore. They look at two stats now. They look at home runs, they look at strikeout, they look how how hard you hit the ball, number one, and they look at how far it goes. A home run is a home run, am I right? Playing baseball, let's let's be honest, playing baseball is is, is, is to score runs. If you score more runs than this person and this team, you're going to win, but they don't do that anymore. No, you cannot go in and to negotiate a contract nowadays and say, "Well, I hit 320." They want to see how many home runs you hit.
0: Well, Ron, let me catch you for a second. You yeah. said something which really struck me. You could lay down a bunt down the third baseline. Correct. I don't think Aaron Judge can do
3: that. No, because he's never been taught that. Because it's it's a whole new it's a whole new uh 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 uh, uh, uh ball player now. It's, you know, it's a whole new mold. These guys, they learned from younger age, like the pitchers. You know That's why they came here, uh, 99% of the pitchers. So,
4: Ron, we only have a few seconds left. I have one question, just in 15 seconds, I have to know from your book, from reading your book. Do you still have the appetite you had back then? Can you still eat and eat and eat, which you talk about quite a bit in your book?
3: (laughs) Yeah, because as soon as I retired, I bought a feed bag. And I just put the food in the feed bag and I just eat. (laughs)
4: well Ron it's it's really a joy to have you here on Wharton Moneyball it well we promise I think you were on as Adi said five or six years ago we promise not to wait another five or six years to have you back on um for those of you again for our listeners please go get Ron's new book The Captain and Me on and off the field with Thurman Munson Ron thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball
3: well it's it's a pleasure uh let's not wait five years because I want to uh, uh uh, see if analytics are still going to be there or if things change. Maybe Abner Doubleday might come up uh, from his grave and might change baseball again, and we'll see. But I think baseball will change in a big way in the next you know, x amount of years or
4: whatever. Well, we'll be here. We'll be here to enjoy it. So that's been four quarters of Wharton Moneyball on behalf of myself, Eric Bradlow, on behalf of my co-hosts, Cade Massey, Adi Weiner, and Shane Jensen. This has been another two hours here of Wharton Moneyball, of the podcast edition. We promise we will be back in the studio soon. On behalf of our producer, Matt Datz, our associate producer, Dion Simpkins, uh, we all thank you for joining us here on Wharton Moneyball. Between now and next week, enjoy your sports, enjoy your analytics, and we'll see you next week here on Wharton Moneyball.